Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Mike DiBernardis, partner at Hughes Hubbard for our continuing uh, series, The Corruption Files. Today, we're going to look at some cases from the tech industry. And uh, as we said in the green room, these cases were wild. Uh, they were a lot of fun at the time. They were a lot of fun to review. And I think they're going to be a lot of fun as we talk about them here today. So first of all, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome back, Mike. Thanks, Tom. Happy to be back. So, Mike, I picked uh, three cases for uh, the tech series, Hewlett-Packard or HP, Microsoft, and Panasonic. Uh, Hewlett-Packard was uh, an earlier case, but it had um, some very significant um, consequences from it uh, that uh, still resonate with us today that we'll touch on. Uh, Microsoft, I thought, or I wanted to bring that up because the response by Microsoft uh, moving to a much more robust data analytical model is something that led the compliance discussion, and Microsoft was really a leader in that area. And then Panasonic, because it was so wild. And uh, if, uh, if you had taken this story to Hollywood, they would have rejected it because they would have said, sorry, all fiction has to be based in fact. So uh, with, with that... Uh, Hewlett-Packard had multiple bribery schemes in multiple countries. Uh, they had a corrupt agent in Germany. Uh, in Poland, they had literally $600,000 in cash paid out of a trunk uh, by a country manager to a corrupt government official, <clears throat> although not at the same time, over 18 months. And then in Mexico, they had a uh, corrupt agent with... Microsoft, they got into trouble for their distributor model in uh, Poland, and Panasonic really just took the cake. Uh, they had bribery and corruption literally across the globe, and they even managed to have it inside the United States. There's only a very, very few uh, FCPA cases where there is a discussion of bribery and corruption inside the United States, but Panasonic uh, had all three. Uh, so maybe uh, I think we may spend some time with this this one today. But what did you see from the prosecutorial perspective uh, that intrigued you about these cases? Uh, I think I think a couple of things. Um, when we were discussing the Panopina cases a few episodes ago, I, I mentioned that I thought it was sort of those cases sort of set the seeds for the corporate enforcement program. There, there just seemed to be a focus on this voluntary disclosure, especially that aspect of the corporate enforcement program. Um, this this focus on voluntary disclosure and the ability to sort of see the real benefits of that. Uh, when you look at especially these three cases, um, you can really start to see a focus on cooperation, right? Some of these cases are absolutely, as you mentioned, wild. The facts are wild. The conduct is is in some places egregious, but there is is a focus in the, you know, towards the end of the, these, these uh, charging documents and, and settlements and uh, really talking about all the efforts the company's made to cooperate uh, and, and giving them credit for that. And I think um, that at the time, really, it, it was a, a focus. It continues to be a focus today. Uh, and this sort of, I don't want to say started it, but you could really start to see it around this, this time frame, especially starting around HP in 2014 and, and moving forward. Uh, and the other thing that and, and I, I'm not just saying this because this these are tech companies, but um, you can really start to see 
more of an emphasis on data analytics with these cases. And, you know, the, 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 the documents really talk about the lack of data analytics and, and where it could have benefited these companies um, in terms of, you know, looking at agents and, and, and sort of comparing their success rates or, you know, doing uh, sort of global looks at your, your distributor models and, and those types of things where um, really these, these companies, I think, had the tools to do it. And, and as you mentioned, Microsoft really sort of took off from here and, and, and implemented it. But we now talk a lot about data analytics and it's, you know, the DOJ has added it to its, its um, uh, compliance guidelines, if you will. Um, and I think this was sort of the start of that emphasis uh, that ultimately culminated with DOJ formally uh, expecting it to be, to be a part of an effective compliance program. So, let me go back to HP uh, for a couple of reasons. One was the bribery schemes involved. And let me start with the most basic. Um, so I'm a Texan. Bags of cash across the border are something well-known in this state. Uh, so I'm always intrigued when you do it the old-fashioned way. You don't have too many of them. But literally, the Poland country manager paid $600,000 to a government official to get contracts over 18 months out of his trunk. So the basic question was, did anyone notice some of our petty cash was missing? And to this day, you have to counsel clients, and I have on, let's look at your petty cash file. You know, what are these expenses for? Who has uh, authority over your petty cash? Is there a segregation of duties? Do you require a dual signature or a check that's written out of petty cash? Why are you paying cash for uh, local services when you could write a check? There's a variety of answers. Some are legitimate uh, business reasons, but you still have to pay attention to your petty cash. The uh, second bribery scheme used by HP was in Munich or in Germany. And here uh, they, the Munich operation uh, sold uh, software into Russia. And they needed a corrupt agent to pay the bribe. And so I think it was within two weeks of the closing, an agent pops up uh, and someone who'd never been an agent in the tech arena before. And they received uh, $10 million out of a $44 million sale as their commission. That money went to the Isle of Man and it was never seen again. So we had multiple failures around due diligence. Uh, but then we learned that this same deal had been proposed inside of um, uh, HP in the United States and had been rejected for those very, very reasons. And somehow uh, the Germany business unit got a hold of it. But the best, well, there were two best parts. Uh, best part number one was there was a contract accountant uh, in Germany who reviewed this deal, and he was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal. And he said, quote, it didn't make sense, end quote. He said, it didn't make sense to me why we were paying $10 million uh, commission for a $44 million sale to someone who had not gone due, through due diligence. And when I looked at them, they were not in the industry um, with uh, no internal approvals. Um, 
So he, he took that deal to his superiors in the business unit and ops approved it, management approved it, the CFO approved it, legal approved it. And he said, I was just a contract accountant. I wasn't going to say no. So that, that actually drove home to me the message that everyone in your team needs to be trained, even those who may be contract, if they are in a high risk uh, situation. But here's uh, favorite fact number two. This was discovered by the Munich tax assessor or the, excuse me, the tax assessor from the province of Bavaria who looked at transactions uh, doing a tax audit. Now, I don't know what, you live in Maryland or DC? DC. Uh, I don't know what the uh, tax audit uh, expertise is like, but the tax audit expertise in Texas, it would be very unusual for a tax auditor to pick up a suspicious payment uh, to an agent. Uh, but this auditor, a state employee, or uh, uh, flagged it and sent it to Berlin, which started the investigation. Um, so I've always been intrigued by that, that the system actually worked to some extent. The last bribery scheme was in Mexico. And here we had a precursor to Panasonic because what happened was uh, it was a sale to Pemex. The business unit wanted to make a, a bribe payment to a Pemex purchasing official. They were going to fund it through an agent. It's going to need 25% of the total purchase price. And the agent failed due diligence. They could not get him through. So the system worked internally. However, not to be uh, denied, the Mexican business unit simply took that agent and appended him to a previously approved agent as a sub-agent. They jacked up the commission rate of the approved agent from 1.5% to 26.5% and paid uh, the, uh, the bribe uh, through that mechanism. And so we had the anomalous situation of a non-corrupt agent who had his commission rate change, and that was approved by accounts payable, but it never went to compliance. So we've seen those bribery schemes, as I mentioned, going forward. Uh, what do you see sort of from all of that or from some of the other bribery schemes from a prosecutorial perspective? Yeah, I, I was chuckling a little bit when you were talking about petty cash. Um, is there's, there's nothing really petty about the amounts that were being paid in cash in Poland there. Uh, and I think, you know, from, from, from a prosecutorial perspective, I, I, what we see often, petty cash is just such low hanging fruit, particularly if, if it's large amounts of petty cash and, you know, it is in the best circumstances, it's, it's difficult to place controls around petty cash. Uh, and so I think a lot of prosecutors, especially once an investigation is going and they're seeing some evidence of of corruption, are are very skeptical about petty cash and, and the use of it. Uh, and this is this is exactly this is exactly why I mean, it's, it, it's these types of cases um, which you don't see quite as much anymore, for for better or worse. Not as good for for TV, uh, right? This is this is the you know the suitcase full of cash. It still does happen occasionally, and it's it's always. Uh, Kind of, kind of wild when it does. Um, and then, you know, I, I think um, for for the other pieces of this, particularly in Mexico, right? You have your compliance controls, due diligence, and and everything else, and you might have your your financial internal controls, accounts payable, and making sure that that all of that is 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 squared away and is is appropriate for the size of your business. Uh, 
Uh, I think this is a reminder that the two should be connected because otherwise, uh, you know, enterprising uh, wrongdoers will, will find the gaps and, and just as they did here, uh, you know, let's let's get through due diligence and then we can play games on the back end before the payments are made. Um, and so that that was something that that sort of stood out to me with respect to this this uh, case. And then I, you know, I think from a when you put this in context and the historical context of it, the time frame in 2014, um, it's interesting to think about you know the industry. This is this was not at the time considered to be a high risk industry from an FCPA perspective, right? This is, you know, at the time we were dealing with, with the healthcare, we were dealing with oil and gas type, type cases. Um, you know, I think defense had historically been, been thrown into the mix as a high risk, uh, um, industry, but, um, technology was not necessarily that way. And this sort of drove home the point that if you are doing business with a foreign government, um, especially if you're making sales to a foreign government, um, you've, that, that, that's putting a, you know, a, a target on your back. And that, that's a, that's a risk from an FCPA perspective. And you have to make sure that your, uh, controls are, are appropriate. So, um, let me pick up on, uh, this, uh, agent scheme that was used by HP because, uh, that really came to the foreign Panasonic. And here we had a situation where there were 13 agents across Central Asia. And they were up for, um, 11 of them were up for renewal. None of them could get past the agent due diligence process. And so what enterprising Panasonic uh, employees did was simply append these 11 corrupt agents to the two that had been previously approved. And rather than change the commission rate, what happened was these two agents who had been humming along with annual commission rates of around a million dollars, went up to 13 million in one year. And that didn't raise any red flags. But even more importantly, and I still don't know why this was in the settlement documents with Panasonic, but they specifically named Trace as having certified uh, the agents. And one, uh, I thought that was a little unfair to Trace, but Andrea Raghi, the founder of Trace, explained it as well as it could be explained. And I'm going to read from this. In a Wall Street Journal article, she said, due diligence is, quote, is a process, not an event. And that's something we've talked about in earlier episodes. And I'm sorry it, it, Trace was, was named in that way, but uh, Alexandra is absolutely right. Uh, due diligence is a process. And if you have previously approved agents whose commissions go from $2 million to $13 million, you need to look at that. And there um, needs to be a, a business uh, reason for doing so. And then on Microsoft, we touched on, uh, or you touched on rather, uh, Microsoft response. Uh, but to drive home the message of how Microsoft used this as an opportunity to really move into transaction monitoring, I'm going to quote from an email, Microsoft President Brad Smith uh, sent to Microsoft employees, it said, quote, we've increased our capability to prevent potential violations by using machine learning to help identify transactions and automatically flag those that pose heightened compliance risk. We now run billions of dollars of deals in 57 countries through this program, 
and have a team apply additional scrutiny to these transactions. And so we saw Microsoft, uh, perhaps not unsurprisingly, uh, really lead in the area of data analytics uh, with machine learning. I cite all of those for the maybe lead to the next topic, which was, once again, you touched on this, some of the discounts given. Uh, HP came out the same week as a case called Parker Drilling. And Parker Drilling had C-suite involvement in the bribery scheme. And Parker Drilling got a significant discount uh, from a, their overall fine and penalty. And, and frankly, none of us could figure that out. HP got a significant discount off their fine and penalty. And once again, a lot of us were scratching our heads. What we didn't know was, and I uh, later visited with Pat Stokes, who was the head of the FCPA unit at that time, they wanted to credit companies for uh, cooperation during the investigation and remediation. Uh, when I was involved from the corporate side, you didn't remediate until you'd receive your enforcement action. That significantly changed in the DOJ uh, gave significant credit to HP, but they also gave credit to Panasonic in the form of a 20% discount. Uh, Microsoft also received a discount. So I was wondering if you might uh, talk about how you use that information to help counsel clients uh, if they, they do find themselves in that situation that get ahead of this, even if you're under investigation. Yeah, look, it's much easier now than it was in in. 2018 with Panasonic, or and especially 2014 with with, with HP, um, because we have such clear guidance, and it's it's almost a formula in terms of the corporate enforcement policy, where they're they're telling you exactly how it's going to work, and we now have a long history where it's it's very clearly described. They you know this company got 25 percent off the full amount allotted because they didn't voluntarily disclose, but. They cooperated, including doing all of these things. I mean, the DOJ especially is very careful in laying out exactly what the company did or what they didn't do, right? So they, they might say uh, the company was awarded only 15% discount because although they cooperated, the cooperation wasn't timely or they didn't you know, make all witnesses available. So you can really start to, to as, as an advisor now, you've got a lot of examples of how this can work and you can put money on it, right? I mean, when you can see these large settlements and where a company, you know, only got 15, a 15% discount instead of 25%, you can, you can value that 10% and say, Hey, this full cooperation, it can be worth as much as, as X. So it really is a lot easier. It wasn't, I, I'll be honest in 2014, especially it would not have been as easy to convince a client to one, just open up and cooperate. Right from day one, make make all your documents available. Do your investigation, share your findings, be fully open and transparent. That wouldn't have been as easy of a sell in 2014. And then on the remediation, I think you raise a good point, right? Because because the for a long time the model was, let's get this thing resolved. Once it's resolved, we'll figure out what we need to do to to remediate and fix. And now that has shifted. And and I think when we look back now, it seems like it started shifting around this time period um, where as soon as you're, you are done your internal investigation, maybe even before you're really officially done, you're, you're advising clients, hey, let's, we're going to do, take these 10 steps to remediate this, you know, in terms of, and that to me includes both backward looking, who are we going to, who are we going to discipline, fire, et cetera, to address the issue as a deterrent? 
and then forward looking, what processes do we need? What's, what was the root cause? What processes do we need to, to address that so that we can present that to the DOJ or SEC, whoever it may be, and say, look, yes, mistakes were made. We're giving you all the information on those. Look at all this stuff that we've done to make sure that going forward, we're a different and better better company and, and uh, you know, can be, can be a, a, a trusted company. And that helps both uh, in reducing the, the total penalty as we've, as we've seen. Uh, and then it's an argument you make too. And when there, there's considerations about whether an independent monitor should be appoint, appointed, uh, you know, a, a remediation, particularly on the compliance and control front early on, puts you in a better position to, to push back on a monitor. Uh, I'd like to maybe change the focus a little bit to the department itself. And we've talked about uh, both uh, the HP case, Panasonic, I threw in partner drilling as early precursors to discounts being given. Um, my colleague, Mike Volkoff, used to say the DOJ always communicates what it's thinking. It's up to you to read the tea leaves. And really... I'm going to stick with, with Parker Drilling and HP because at the ACI National Conference in 2014, Pat Stokes, then head of the FCPA unit, uh, for the first time publicly spoke about the, the cooperation and the credit that was given. Uh, unfortunately, those remarks were uh, uh, in a panel, so there was no you know, text available on the DOJ website. But the next year, in 2015, Leslie Caldwell started talking about the things they wanted to see around cooperation and what they would give credit for. And then, of course, in 2016, we had the pilot program, um, which we've talked about on an earlier podcast. But there, for the first time, you, you were told what your credit would be. Then the pilot program led to the FCPA corporate enforcement policy announced by Rod Rosenstein in 2017, which is something that we are that is still with us today. So I was wondering if you might have some thoughts about sort of the Maybe not the evolution in the DOJ's thinking, but the evolution in their ability to communicate to the white collar defense bar, to the compliance community, their expectations and how we can use those expectations uh, to help our clients going forward. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think, again, it's easier now than it was then. Um, and, and although, you know, in 2014, the, you know, the ACI conference was available, there, there are now so many opportunities for for uh, DOJ officials to speak on the FCPA. There, there are, are conferences, you know, there are regional conferences, there, there are industry-specific conferences. Um, and I, I think, to, to their credit, one of the things that DOJ does a good job of now is, um, you know, kind of having very uh, planned out uh, remarks for, for various conferences that, that are coinciding well with with actions, right? So, um, you know, uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe Rod Rosenstein um, announced the corporate enforcement policy at the ACI conference in, in D.C. in, in uh, 2017. Um, and it's, so it has become a sort of an expectation that that if, it, if, a, if a high-ranking official from the DOJ is going to be speaking at especially that conference, but others as well, they might say something very worthwhile, uh, and so you know w- whether you can attend or not. That's, that's one thing, but but make sure you're you're following up with or whether through their press release immediately following or 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 elsewise to hear what they have to say. Um, but then 
you know, it's one thing to, to talk the talk. Uh, it, it's all useless unless you're seeing it in, in the enforcement actions. And I think, um, it, it is when to, to go back to, to what your, your, your colleague mentioned, you know, when what they're saying out loud matches the tea leaves is when you have this, this, this perfect storm, if you will, of, of being able to say, okay, this is, this is how this is going for, for a practitioner. It makes it much easier to, to explain to clients exactly what's happening and exactly what to expect, right? Cause I have, I have an example and I have, I have what the DOJ is, is saying that example means. And when the two match up, uh, it, it really makes life easier. And so I, I don't know if I would call it an evolution. I think what happened is we got a, we got a, a bigger body of FCPA cases. Um, we had the DOJ themselves understanding what's valuable to them in terms of whether it's cooperation or voluntary disclosure, or, and it might, it might change. And, and that, that part of it might have evolved over the years. I think it's been pretty steady now for a few years as to what they're looking for. And then lots of opportunity to sort of communicate that both, both in action and through, through speeches and, and publications and everything else. And so I, I think we're at a, a pretty good place, not a perfect place, but a pretty good place now of, of understanding um, what the department wants to see, uh, what they don't like to see, uh, and you know have a, a, a very broad formula for maximizing your your credit if you know if, if, it, if it comes to a place where you're, uh, you think you're, you're facing an FCPA violation. Well, Mike, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us uh, next time where we continue the wild west of FCPA enforcement, this time moving to telecom. And if you think uh, these cases were wild, just wait. <laughs> Absolutely. Looking forward to it, Tom.